Where's Junior? What do you mean? Didn't you put him in? No, I thought... Where'd we leave him? Welcome to the Hollywood and Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. The hit cast offers a weekly look at Hollywood from a conservative point of view. Sick of media bias infecting Hollywood headlines? Tired of stars insulting your views? Hit has your back. Now, here's your host, Christian Toto. Welcome to episode 140 of the Hollywood and Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. This week, we're talking with comedian and inspirational speaker David Diebel. Dave suffered what could have been a career-ending injury a little while back. It only made him stronger and funnier. He's got a very cool story to share. This week, I wanted to peel back the curtain on life as a professional movie critic. I know, pretty glamorous, right? There actually are perks to the gig. You get free movies. He's got a lot of free movies. Free popcorn? Eh, Not so much. All year round, we are courted by PR types. Come see our movie. Come review our movie. Would you like to interview X or Y from said movie? It's pretty consistent. But then this time of year, Oscar season, award season, that pressure gets pretty intense. Turns out studios large and small want to get nominated for something, anything, except a Razzie, of course. That means critics like me receive screeners in the mail each November. November is I'm just waiting at the mailbox, seeing what's going to happen next. Now, these are the DVDs, or sometimes we get screening links, too, kind of the uh, digital age stepping up, that let us watch films that either were in theaters and we missed them, or even movies that are not yet available to be seen. I'm going to be watching Richard Jewell this weekend. It's a new Clint Eastwood movie. I can't wait. It doesn't come out for about two more weeks, but again, one of the few perks of being a film critic, beyond the massive pay, is seeing movies like that early. Now, another thing that comes around this time of year, though, for me is guilt. I can't watch all these screeners. I've got dozens and dozens of films to watch, and there's only so much time in a day, in a week, in a month. I'm doing my very best. I've watched as many as I can, and I'll continue to do so, but I just can't catch them all. But I think what's interesting to me about this whole brief mini-season is the swag I get. Now, listen, I'm not uh, you know, getting $1,000 luxuries. It's just little, little gifts that the movie studios send our way that are tied to the movies in question. For The Irishman, I got a bottle of wine. For Dolomite is My Name, the Eddie Murphy movie, I got a very thick blue jean jacket. It's kind of cool. I wish it was my size, but beggars can't be choosers. I also got a Little Woman book talking about the movie, and it's signed by Greta Gerwig, the movie's director. Pretty cool. And I guess all of this kind of keeps these movies at the top of my mind. That's the whole purpose, right? Why else would they send this stuff? Because you keep thinking about the movie in question. Oh, yeah, there's that Irishman bottle of wine we can drink tonight. I like the movie, too. Well, I'm not going to complain about it, but I'm just kind of curious how much it costs to send out all this stuff. I mean, sending out a bottle of wine, that's not cheap. And the other stuff isn't small either, so... Very interesting. I I almost wish there could be a story about the story behind these giveaways and these little trinkets that we get each time of year. But hey, keeps me busy, keeps my mailbox full, and uh, I bet you the wine's going to be pretty good. So happy holidays, and I just thought you'd like to see a little sneak peek at what it's like to be a movie critic. Yeah, it's even less glamorous than you think. 
The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. And now here's the hit tweet of the week. This week's winner is Sarah Silverman, a hard left comic who just isn't that funny anymore. It's a prime example of living life in an ideological bubble. Check this out. This week she railed against a government plan that was designed to corral illegal immigrants. It featured a fake university that drew illegals out and let the government do the rest. You know, its job, protecting the borders. Here's her tweet. This is disgusting. Our government is doing this. This makes me want to punch. Left unsaid in Sarah Silverman's tweet, the program began under the Obama administration. Oh. You're listening to my daddy's podcast. He makes us go to bed early if we don't watch Avengers Infinity War with him. Again. My hit tip of the week is crashing. Phoebe Waller-Bridge became a superstar after her series Fleabag caught serious pop culture fire. Count me among Fleabag Nation. I love that show. Only two seasons? Come on. Give me more. So when I realized that she also wrote and co-starred in a show on Netflix called Crashing, I had to give it a try. Well, six episodes later, I'm pretty glad I did. It's a British comedy about a group of really attractive 20-somethings crashing at an abandoned hospital. It's a very complex little backdrop here, but it's really not super important. It's all about these young people, getting to know them, getting to see some very detailed characters. I I feel like I've known these characters for weeks and weeks and weeks, even though I binge-watched the whole in just a couple nights. There's sex, of course. There's romance. There's confusion. And a lot of curry eating. Kind of made me hungry. Now, Waller Bridge plays Lulu, the girl who may or may not have gotten away from another character on the show, Anthony. Now, the live wire in this whole cast is a guy named Sam. He's played by Jonathan Bailey. I have to say, I've not seen this actor before, but pretty darn impressive. He's a bad boy. He's flirting too hard. I guess he could be like a Me Too case if you wanted to press the issue. And he's got a heart of gold. Or is he just, just a jerk? It's not quite clear. Now, I ran through these episodes. Again, they're 30 minutes long, easily digested. They're funny, they're interesting, a little bit insightful into the human condition, and a bit crazy at times. I thought a couple of plot twists were a little a little bit too much, but listen, you go with it. I think overall it's very, very smart, very creative, and very interesting. And I have to say, I would love to see a season two, a season three, but we got just six episodes. And Waller Bridge right now, well, she just wrote the new James Bond movie coming out in April, and I guarantee her plate is chock full of other assignments got to say that crashing's got to be low on her uh, to-do list if it's ever going to happen again. So 
One season's all we got, but it's available right now on Netflix. You're listening to the Hollywood in Toto podcast, the right take on entertainment. David Diebel is one of those guys who may be a little too talented. He's an inspirational speaker. He's a stand-up comedian. He's a juggler. He does lots and lots of different things. So naturally, I wanted to have him on the HitCast. Now, one of the things that David does is he can kick a billiard ball into his eye socket. It's one of his series of physical stunts that are kind of fun to watch. Now, he learned that particular bit after an injury to his arm technically ended his professional juggling life. But there's no quit in this guy. He's also performed on The Tonight Show, The Late Late Show, and many other venues. And now, he's opening up about his life and career for us. Cool, right? Here's my conversation with David Diebel. Well, Dave, I was reading that you joined a magician's group at the age of eight, and I'm thinking, all right, I want to hear more about that, but also, were your parents worried? Because that seems like an interesting group of friends to, to associate with at a young age. But t- yeah, tell me a little bit about your early years, because I... It sounds like the the entertaining bug bit pretty early. Yeah, I got started really early. Um, I it, I guess it all started with my uncle, who was a member of the Magic Castle in Hollywood, a great uh, private magic club, and he was always doing card tricks for me. Um, so, like a lot of kids, I got into magic at a very early age, and I joined uh, a local magic club which I didn't know at the time was really one of the best magic clubs in the country. I don't think any of us really realized how good it was, but it went on to produce some, uh, some fantastic names in the magic world. So I got really lucky. I mean, it was the clubhouse itself was maybe a mile from my home and, and my parents were fine with it. They were really supportive. And so, uh, from an early age, I was immersed in, uh, you know, doing shows and, and one of the things that made the Long Beach Mystics so great it was there was a lot of emphasis on presentation and performing. So it wasn't just about being a great uh, technical magician, but uh, learning how to present it to an audience in such a way and and uh, in such a way that it really um, maximizes the impact. Yeah. Was it a duck to water kind of moment for you where you thought, wow, this is really not only was I curious about this, not only was my uncle kind of cool. But this is something that I could really dig into and really experience and experiment with. Was it that kind of sensation when you joined your fellow magicians? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I wasn't really self-aware mm-hmm. at that time. I was just a little kid. I just knew that I, I really liked it. I mean, uh, so I, you know, I, I think my very first shows were in my parents' garage. I had my my cousin down the street was my assistant and. <laughs> And so it, it wasn't like, boy, um, well, I guess it was to a certain extent. I, I thought, okay, this is what I really want to do. Mm-hmm. I kind of took it for granted that that, that was the case. But um, I was so inside the bubble. I didn't really, you know, look out from, from outside and think, okay, this is, this is what I want to do. I just knew that I really liked it. And uh, at some point, obviously, I realized that this is what I – want to do when I get older. But at the time, I, I don't even think I was aware that I would get older. I was so young. That's right. Now, along the way, you kind of expanded your act, juggling, stand-up comedy. You do uh, you know uh, inspirational speaking. Uh, 
from your perspective, is is it a matter of having a lot of different interests? Is it sort of a a restless creative spirit where you kind of like to go in different directions? How did you kind of evolve to where you are today? Because it's I don't even know how to describe you. I mean, you're you're a performer, you're an entertainer, but you wear a lot of different hats. Yeah, no, it's much more practical. Um, let me see. I chronologically, I started off doing magic when I was about eight years old, performing. Uh, I learned to juggle when I was ten years old, because um, in the Long Beach Mystics, the magic club I was in had a a juggling class, and I I really took to that. And for a while, I did both magic and juggling simultaneously. But I kind of uh, fell out of the magic a little bit, although I kept a lot of I kept a foot in the magic world socially. I mean, I know a lot of magicians, mm-hmm. things like that. Um, but I started doing more and more juggling. But I always did comedy with the juggling. It was always a talking act. Um, and as far as the stand-up goes, that's uh, – I mean, not to – I don't want to get too far into the weeds. But I uh, hit <laughs> – I had an accident. I was riding a tall unicycle in my show. And what I would do is I, I would pretend to be out of control on this tall, six-foot-tall unicycle, and I would ride through the audience and out of the theater and then across the lobby and back into the theater from the other side. And uh, when I was coming back into the theater, I was 22 years old, um, I I didn't duck sufficiently, so I hit my head on the, the cross beam of the door. I had a big you know, hockey puck-sized uh you know, lump on my head, but I was fine. I finished the show. But ever since then, I developed a, a problem with my right arm. And basically overnight, I lost the vast majority of my juggling ability. I, uh, my arm does this funny thing. It pronates inwards and I can't really control it. And I start hitting my rib cage if I try to do conventional toss juggling, you know, juggling balls, rings and clubs. So I had really no choice but to start getting into more unconventional stuff if I was going to keep performing. So for example, instead of juggling three objects, I started doing things like uh, kicking a half dollar into the air and catching it in my eye socket. Or I I roll a honeydew melon down my back and pierce it between my legs with a gardening fork, things like that. So the act became a lot more original and it worked out really good because, uh, well, like I said, more original and um, I... uh, it's also good because I, I I look like a normal guy. I wear a suit and tie, but I'm doing all these crazy things. And that's one thing I learned from Steve Martin. I mean, if you look wild and crazy and you do wild and crazy things, you're like a lot of other performers. But if you look normal and you're doing crazy things, uh, then it's just it's funny. Yeah. Did it did it take you a while to shift gears? I mean, it must have been you know obviously upsetting in many ways that the the injury happened but it, it sounds like you were able to kind of uh, reconfigure your act in a, in a creative way but was there was there a period where you weren't sure you could do that or did you kind of sort of take the jig or jag in, in a quicker fashion in a sense well yeah i mean psychologically it was really tough but i didn't really have any choice i mean i was 23 i uh i've never exactly been college material or anything like that. And I just knew that, you know, by then, you know, I, I really was, I knew that this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so I, it was a gradual process, um, replacing, you know, um, some of the old, a lot of the material that I could no longer do 
with new stuff. Um, and I had a lot of help from friends co-writing and collaborating and stuff like that. But um, it was like anything else, you know, you get a little bit of success. I'd incorporate a new routine and, and you know, enjoy the success and, of, of performing in front of the audience and getting laughs and kind of realizing like, oh, this is, this is great. I don't need to be a great juggler. I can just, you know, just kind of the suitcase can be totally empty and I can still kind of sell what's inside of it. Um, so that kind of uh, kept me going. But, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't let the audience know. I mean, I'd be on stage and thinking, good Lord, is this going to work? Uh-huh. But in, you know, uh, outwardly, you know, it's like anything else, uh, with standup, you know, what can you do, but just, you know, put a smile on your face and, and commit to the material. And so it's, uh, it, you know, in a way it's, it's really the best thing that happened to my career. I never have to worry about, you know, what other, any other, uh, variety performers are doing on the bill or anything like that. I mean, magicians come up to me who don't know me. They think I'm a magician. They ask me, are, are you doing this trick? Are you doing that trick? Or, you know, our jugglers saying, you know, what are you going to be doing in your act? And it's like, don't worry about it. Just do your act. And <laughs> I promise, promise you, I won't, there won't be a conflict of material. <laughs> I love that. Uh, you know, it sounds like, listen, a lot of entertainers go out there to make people laugh. It's sort of the, uh, the boilerplate for any kind of standup. But it sounds like you had that let's put on a show uh, Mickey Rooney angle from a long time ago. Is it, th- Did that kind of bite you young where you thought, I just want to make people take them away from their day-to-day doldrums? And is that, it sounds like that might be the through line of your career. Well, now, yeah. Like when I started, um, I think, yeah, sure. You like making people laugh. I will say that every now and then someone will say, and I'm sure a lot of comedians get this, someone will say, um, you know, I really needed to laugh. Uh-huh. And I don't know if they really uh, realize how meaningful it is because, you know, you always want to do a good show and um, you love to hear people come up and say, man, that was so funny. I cracked up. Um, but, you know, when somebody tells you that they usually put it in, they formulate it that way. They say, well, I really need to laugh today. You know, it really makes you reflect that uh, it really is a noble calling doing comedy because there are a lot of people out there um with problems, probably most people, certainly people, you know, uh, over, uh, you know, who are no longer kids anymore. You get older, you develop more problems. And, uh, uh, so yeah, it really makes you realize that you, you do a lot of good. I mean, I think of all those years, all thousands of shows, hours and hours, if you were to add it up of, of laughter. Um, yeah. I, so I, I think it's, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not curing cancer or anything like that. But like I said, I, I do think it's a, a noble calling comedian. You, you know, I'm a parent and I've got two boys and I, I almost think my best parenting wins and they're, they're not, they don't come too often is when I make my boys really, really laugh. It's like that moment where you just kind of everything else floats away. So I'm no comedian, but I, I do get that sensation. I was kind of curious, part of oh, the work yeah. you, you do. Kids, I'm sorry to interject yeah. there, but yeah, kids are, uh, kids are really fun to make laugh because they're, they're pretty, usually pretty easy and you never have to worry. It's not like you're up on stage making money and you know, you want to get booked again for the same gig. You can just constantly perform (laughs) for them and they're always a usually pretty good audience. Yeah. And I I find that the things I think are funny go over like lead balloons with my boys, but the things that maybe aren't 
uh, what I think will be a home run, they laugh and they laugh. So, they're oh, so you've got terrible comedy instincts. Then. <laughs> <laughs> That's, right. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing and you're doing what you're doing. That's right. So, a part of the work you do involves corporate gigs. And I was kind of curious about, I, I kind of get the sense that, well, you want to refine your act and you can't be too outrageous. And there are certain things you do. But real quickly, take us into that that part of your profession and and sort of how you operate along those sort of different guidelines. Well, it's hard to generalize. Um, after a while, you kind of develop an intuitive sense, you know, when you arrive at the gig of of what the audience is is looking for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so if it's uh, obviously, if I don't know, a, a church show or something, they want it to be clean. If it's a a, a college show, they want it to be politically correct. Um, a lot of times, you know, I'll do shows up in the Dakotas. And they'll emphasize to me, you know, repeatedly, listen, you know, it's, it's got to be clean. And so, you know, of course, you know, I, I, I work, that's my default mode anyway. But, and then after the show, you know, they'll be you know, telling me some of the dirtiest jokes I've ever heard in my life. So they don't mind, uh, you know, anything off stage, yeah. but, you know, obviously you rep, they represent, you know, if they're the ones who hired me, they, they want it to be clean. So you were clean. Um, so, but like I said, it, it's kind of an intuitive thing. Usually things aren't explicit. You kind of just get a feel. You walk into the room and you know uh, what kind of material will work and what won't. Um, it's like politically, it's very easy, although most of the jokes I do, you know, um, appeal to, to audiences regardless of their, you know, political orientation. Mm-hmm. Um so, but yeah, like I said, you just kind of get a feel for it. Gotcha. We're chatting a little bit off air before the conversation we're having now about performing in colleges. And it sounds like you had a, a story to share and we want to, to kind of maybe flesh it out now. So it sounds like you have performed in front of colleges in the past, but maybe it's not part of what you do now. T- tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, I don't do college shows anymore. I mean, I'll do the occasional one-off, but I don't perform on the college circuit or anything. Um, there's a Caitlin Flanagan, the writer at The Atlantic, wrote an excellent article about NACA. NACA is N-A-C-A, the National Association of Campus Activities, and it's really the the uh, you know the gatekeeper for performing on colleges. And it's uh, you know it's a uh, a politically correct institution on steroids. And if you if you want to perform at colleges, you pretty much have to perform a, an audition, what they call a showcase. And one of their, uh, you know, regional um, auditions, mm-hmm. and it's uh, yeah, it's the only audience I've done done a couple. Is the only audience I really didn't like. I mean, on a personal level, not that I mean I've had bad audiences and so forth, but these are. Uh, I mean, when you think of uh, the angry social justice warrior imagine performing in for an audience full of them they're extraordinarily self-conscious um, for example i would do a joke and like one woman would would just blurt out laughing and then there would be silence she'd immediately snap up so it's like no one wants to be the first person to laugh which is about you know the worst kind of audience it's yeah. like having you know, uh, some corporate gigs can be like that when the CEO's in the room. Everybody wants to look to the CEO first to see, 
if it's okay to laugh. And um, so college circuit tends to produce a certain kind of emasculated comedian, totally non-controversial. Many of them call themselves, um, it's not poet, it's uh, word artists or something. I don't know. But uh, and they usually have a you know some sob story to tell. Either um, I remember one comedian whose act was about overcoming shyness and so forth. What it isn't is just uh, a bunch of great men and women telling really funny jokes. Which sounds like is the job requirement, but maybe I'm old fashioned. Uh, I also, you know, it's funny. I I learned about you and your routine through a website called PowerlineBlog.com. It's a very I've been reading it for years. It's a great site. It's it's right of center. It's a conservative website, and they kind of dabble in politics and culture and entertainment. And, I, and it sounds like you kind of lean to the right, generally speaking, but I'm guessing it's not a key point of your act, but do you kind of sprinkle in some political moments when it is appropriate, and how do you do that? Well, yeah. I mean, to me, I mean, the job is to make the audience laugh. Um, so... I suppose I would do different material if the only audience I performed for were, you know, your crazy right wing uncle. But, you know, my audiences are mixed. They're a bit of everyone. So any joke that I do has to appeal to anyone regardless of their politics. So, for example, I do a joke about um, uh, I lived in San Francisco for a year. I was not only president of the Bay Area Republicans Club, but I was also the member. (laughs) <laughs> so that's the joke. And, you know, that's one that audiences laugh at, whether I'm performing in, you know, uh, Kansas or Mill Valley, California, because the joke isn't slamming progressives. It's just a joke about being a conservative in the Bay Area. Uh, or I say I talk about being married. I got married old school to a woman. <laughs> you, know, you know, there's something wrong with you if you have to um, – filter that through some sort of lens before you, you know, you're allowed to laugh at it. And most audiences of mine, even if they're liberal or what have you, uh, think that's funny. So I try to keep that in mind. And just as I talked about instincts, you get instincts for various audiences before you even go on, you kind of get an instinct for what kind of political material will work. Now there are some jokes that maybe I, you know, I tilt my hand a little bit. Lately, I've been doing one about um, uh, we have two two daughters and a son. And uh, of course, I remember when you had to wait until your kids were born to learn their gender. Nowadays, of course, you have to wait until they're 18. Mm-hmm. So to me, I, I think that's kind of in the same spirit as those previous jokes. But I don't know. Maybe some people might get upset about it. But like I said, in general, I try to strive for things that just kind of uh, kind of speak to people's gut. And that's probably worth expanding on. If, if some people have to think before they laugh, then, they, you know, it's they're not going to enjoy a lot of the best comedy. I mean, to me, you can't enjoy comedy at all if it's a cerebral act. It, great comedy. And, you know, Dennis, I know you had Dennis Miller on your podcast earlier. There's a guy whose material just, it, it just punches you in the gut. And you, to me, I mean, you can't not laugh at most of his material. Well, I think if you had said to both of us, maybe a decade ago, that there will be comedians hitting the road 
And when they tell a joke, the audience laughs and then looks around for common approval. You would laugh at that concept. But, uh, you know, at, at the worst, listen, most people still go to comedy clubs. They enjoy it. It's part of the culture. But that aspect just really confuses and baffles me. It makes me a little sad, too, because I think there's such, you know, the, we want to kind of embrace the joy in life. And if you can't just enjoy a good joke and, 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 and let that initial instinctual laugh out without consequences. I, I, it makes me kind of feel sad for you, but that's, that's the way it is yeah. in some circles. Yeah. To cite that Caitlin Flanagan article again in the Atlantic, um, she talks about how the college circuit has never really produced a comedian of note. I mean, you would never obviously see Dave Chappelle. He would get nowhere, uh, on the college circuit. Uh, Jerry Seinfeld has talked about how he doesn't perform at colleges anymore. And I think in stand-up, at least in the U.S., there's always been a strong kind of countercultural streak in it. I think of George Carlin, for example. And when you have a, uh, you know, a president in the White House who's constantly, you know, um, knocking down, uh, the media or something, you've got a countercultural figure in the White House, a lot of comedians are kind of confused. They don't know, I mean, I want to make fun at the media too, but is that, does that make me a Trump supporter? And mm-hmm. so there's a lot of self-consciousness going on and it all comes back to the same thing where the best comedians, the best comedy uh, is just the comedy that, that that makes you laugh, not necessarily, not the comedy that that makes you think. Although, you know, comedy that makes you think is great too, but it has to make you laugh. Yeah. I think Jay Leno said it best, write joke, tell joke, collect check. And I'm either paraphrasing or I've got it exactly. It seems like a very simple concept that we've kind of made a little bit more complicated than it should be. Now, you've you've been sort of all over. Your your career is kind of ricocheted from speaking gigs to comedy to juggling to stand-up to magic. I was kind of curious – you you see show business from a, a lens that we don't see. Is it different than than most people would imagine? Is it darker? Is it lighter? Is it? <laughs> how would you kind of describe your experiences? You've been on the Tonight Show. What is showbiz like for someone who just reads about it in in you know in the papers and online? Uh, and what is it like for someone who's in it? Yeah. Um, what do you see? What's your, I mean, is it darker? Is it lighter? Is it more generous uh, than people expect? Is it more cutthroat? Is it more everyone's helping each other? I, I, I mean, it's kind of a vague question, but I just, uh, you just have a, a very unique uh, sure. perspective. I no, I understand. Um, well, it, it's very much uh, an office job. I mean, during the day, you know, there's emails to send and there's, you know, prospective clients to try to connect with and things like that. So a lot of it's just pretty, you know, prosaic uh, work like that. Um, you know, I've avoided problems like you know, drug abuse or what have you. Um, so a lot of it is just kind of, uh, you know, booking, you know, filling up your calendar with, with dates. Um, the shows themselves are, to me, are just, Fun. I've never become jaded. I mean, I, you know, when I was starting doing stand-up, I would I was living in Denver actually, where you are, and uh, I would go to open mic nights a couple times a week wherever I could find a cafe or what have you that had an open mic night, and uh, 
uh, you know, I always had a couple of props in my pocket because I get, I was, if I got nervous during this stand up and wanted to bail, I could always kind of segue into my variety act. Uh-huh. But that way I developed my stand up and I, I enjoy performing, whether it's for, you know, six, six people or 600. I, I've never grown tired of it. Um, as long as the shows are going good and, and fortunately, uh, you know, there's the shows, shows are still going good. So from my point of view, I, I love it and, uh, really don't foresee myself doing anything else anytime soon. Gotcha. One last quick question, Dave. I kind of asked a vague one about show business. Here's an even more vague question, but it's about people and just, I, I think you get to look at people and you see them with their guards down, you make them laugh, you entertain them. Does it teach you anything about American culture um, that maybe other folks don't get? Hmm. Which is kind of uh, like Barbara Walters. If you wait. were a tree, what kind of tree you would be? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, yeah, it is. I mean, because I, you know, I have performed for a handful of non-American audiences. I've done some shows in Germany and Holland for, you know, English speaking, English language shows, needless to say. Um, well, yeah, I think so. America, one, one of the things about the U.S. that's so unique is that it's so unique in so many different ways. I mean, just the the scale of, you know, it's a totally singular country. And I don't know that maybe with the exception of England, of a country that loves to laugh quite as much as Americans do. Now, of course, British humor is famously different than American humor, but, uh, and maybe it's, maybe it's a, a Jewish thing. I mean, we're famously, you know, Jew friendly country, the United States, but Americans for, seem to treat comedy as if it's sort of an essential thing. It's a fact of life, you know, yeah. and it's a, it's a happy fact of life. And so it's sort of like, um, there will never be uh, a shortage of suppliers of comedy in America because there will never be a shortage of demand for comedy mm-hmm. in America. And, you know, I'm saying this as someone married to a German and has spent a lot of time in Germany. I'm in fact in Germany this very moment. Um, so, uh, I, I kind of know, uh, what it's like to, to perform in, in other countries. And I, so I think, uh, one of the unique things about American audiences is that, they know the format. They love stand up, and uh, as long as you, you you do great material, they're 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 on your side. Excellent. I, I like that. Another part of the great American tradition. But uh, I'm glad you gave that perspective. Well, thank you, Dave, for joining the Headcast. You can go to daviddebel.com for all the info you need about Dave and his act and where he might be next. And that's David D E B L E dot com. There'll be show notes, links on the Hollywood and Toto site. You can find it there. You can also find him on Twitter at David Diebel. All the best, Dave, and uh, come back to both the States and Denver real soon. Hey, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Well, thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check out HollywoodandToto.com for both the show notes and, of course, the latest entertainment news. Please follow me at Twitter at HollywoodandToto. And we'd love it if you leave a podcast review over at iTunes. See you next week. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. 
I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call. The Medicare annual election period deadline is coming soon. I'm Meredith Vieira, here with examples of people who found the key to the right coverage at MyHealthPolicy.com. Meet Larry. He likes doing things online. I took my time and found the best Medicare Advantage plan for me at MyHealthPolicy.com. Next is Mary. When she wanted answers, she picked up the phone. I wanted a local perspective on plan, so I called MyHealthPolicy.com. And finally, Michael. I prefer face-to-face, so I chose MyHealthPolicy.com and enrolled on the spot. Go to MyHealthPolicy.com to learn about top-rated Medicare Advantage plans in your area, including $0 premium plans, or call 1-800-GO-START. That's 1-800-GO-START. MyHealthPolicy.com. Meredith Vieira is a paid endorser. KF Agency operates MyHealthPolicy.com, not connected with or endorsed by the U.S. government or the federal Medicare program. A licensed insurance agent may call.